0: I should have some notes or something to refer to. It looks, at least look like I know what I'm doing up here. I, uh, I started to feel sick during that period of meditation. So uh, we'll see how this goes. Sometimes meditating... Brings on uh, feelings, uncomfortable body states, and uh, sometimes that's like just a um, like a side effect of uh, of meditating. You know, like maybe there's something just being exercised from the body or the mind or something. And sometimes you're just getting sick. I don't know, but uh, I will try to carry on. <laughs> song lyrics always—you know—whenever I say say something and it's like it contains a lyric from a song, especially when I'm sitting up here, I get very self-conscious and I want to start either <laughs> singing or reciting lyrics. Especially, I mean, as, and usually there's something some, something really tacky, you know, and, and you really feel foolish, but. Uh, Ah, uh, let's see. So step 10 says, "We continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it." Uh, one of my uh, friends, uh, who's a Unitarian Universalist minister and who's in recovery and kind of teaches some of this stuff in various contexts or talks about it, wrote me last week and said, I've heard you mention something about this being like an archetypal path or something. And could you, you know, briefly remind me what you meant by that? So, um, you know, when we get to this uh, step nine, uh, where we're making amends, we're kind of... uh, Coming to the end of some uh, some kind of episode of the process, some some stage of the process and and um, it's kind of like we're wrapping things up in a certain way. and then step ten, you know, it's just so interesting that you've made amends, and now I have to keep <laughs> I'm not done yet and and it it seems like this is where we really begin to get the uh, clear message that. Uh, this is not a one-time-only process, and that, that the that there is a there is kind of a step-by-step process that we need to go through um, for various reasons. Partly to uh, kind of uh, set ourselves on the path, which is kind of what steps two and three seem to be doing, and then four through nine, the first time of kind of getting. Uh, an idea of getting clearer about uh, where we've come from and uh, what the uh, what the problems are that we've created and that we are dealing with, both internally and externally, and then this this uh, process of trying to heal relationships uh, and and kind of taking care of those things in, in a big way, and. Um, And then seeing that uh, because we are who we are, because we uh, have, a, we could say that because we have karma, we've created karma, and, and, and I don't mean that in any kind of mystical way, but rather that we have, um, we've, we're deeply conditioned. Uh, to be who we are, to have the personalities and habitual ways of being that we have, that even though we can change um, gross behaviors like alcoholism and addiction or codependence or enabling, that um, nonetheless these the underlying um, patterns of uh, emotional longing and uh, uh, the uh, habitual ways of seeing the world and reacting to the world uh, aren't aren't so easily uprooted, and so the so step ten is pointing to that, saying that of course uh, we may be able to take care of some of these uh, big mistakes that we've done in the past, or change some of our Really destructive behavior, but we're still going to make mistakes. And I, I, you know, I referred to the the fact that the in the monastic tradition they have a monthly practice of um, of uh, reciting the precepts and then and then um, talking about uh, and then con- kind of confessing. Um, to how they've broken the precepts, I, I have to acknowledge that I'm, I'm not looking at you <laughs> as much as I usually do, and it's because I'm just trying to. Um, I'm having a little difficulty just um, because I'm not feeling well. So, in order to concentrate, I'm, I'm not not looking at you. So, I just want you to not take it personally. Uh, so, um, the. Uh, it, you know, there's a there's a beauty to that kind of ritual that the that the monastics uh, participate in, and and the fact that that's something that they've done for so long, for thousands of years, um, speaks to the archetypal aspect of this. The fact that it's really a fundamental process that is innate to any spiritual path. Uh, uh, you know, and having grown up uh, as a Roman Catholic and, and going to confession, which for you know, a seven- and eight-year-old kid is kind of absurd, nonetheless, it, it, again, there was this process built into the religion that, that um, points to something authentic, uh, even if it's become corrupted or watered down. And, uh, you know, and I'll also say that uh this was one of the hardest things for me when uh, before I got sober was to ever admit to being wrong or admit to my uh failings. Um, this I mentioned uh at the beginning of the class tonight this guy who was in this treatment center I was visiting on Tuesday and him uh saying that he didn't think he could ever, um, I mean, basically, uh, essentially saying he didn't feel he could ever be forgiven for how he had treated people. And, um, and maybe that's one of the reasons why it's hard to admit our failings, um, because we don't really see any, any other side, like that, there's a, that it's possible to move beyond them Um, one of the phrases that I like from the Buddhist suttas is the Buddha says that his monks should be easy to admonish Uh, it's a nice goal to have to be easy to admonish Um, some days I'm easier to admonish than others And another phrase from the 12-step literature that, of course, comes to mind is when it says at the end of the section of Chapter 5 that's usually read at the beginning of AA meetings anyway, um, we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. And that's often shortened into progress, not perfection. Um, And that seems, again, to be what this Step 10 is talking about. I think when we become sensitive, as we do through our mindfulness practices, as you were talking about, uh, we become less tolerant of suffering, of our own suffering, less willing to tolerate the suffering that we create for ourselves. And when we see that there's a process by which we can move through this, By making amends or admitting we're wrong, or it's not always doing anything outward. It can be an inward that that there's a way in which just the meditation process, just as you were describing, that that when you realize, oh, spacing out or thinking it's not worth it, it's not really comfortable. That that kind of coming back to the breath is a kind of version of that. It's it's not admitting we're wrong, but it's just admitting like that's not the direction I want to go. uh, I don't know that step 10 is exactly um, a meditation, but but there's a way in which um, this kind of uh, promptly admitted it. It kind of connects to me to the meditative process. Let me talk about step 11. Step 11, certainly the, the step that kind of... Uh, brings us here in a sense, brings us to spirit rock. Step 11 says we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Of course, I would take out the words him. Uh, And there's so much that's packed into this step um, this idea of seeking so that we see our path or our, our spiritual work as an, as an ongoing process. Um, it doesn't have a, a, a goal, particularly necessarily a goal. It certainly doesn't have an end that we can foresee. I mean, even the Buddha after his enlightenment continued to practice meditation and continued to deal with um, Mara the tempter. Uh, it's one of the great risks of the recovery process as well to think that we have achieved something or that we have arrived somewhere. And, and life keeps uh, changing. Things keep changing. Uh, we go through good times and, and feelings that we've achieved something where we've arrived somewhere and then then um, that fades away and the next thing happens and we have to deal with that. And, and this is happening both internally and externally so that internally we may come to some sense of uh, connection with the higher power or a sense that we've sort of figured out our place in the, in our spiritual life and how we understand God or how we know how to meditate or something and, and that changes and then we uh, might again be completely thrown and, and really questioning or doubting our path and and if we, if we do get to a point where we think we've got it it's particularly dangerous because then if we lose it there's the sense that um, We've lost something we had, <laughs> and and um, and then there's a sense of grief or a sense of failure, uh, or this doesn't work. Not understanding that that uh, that everything is impermanent, that everything is changing, and there, that wherever we arrive is just a place where we're visiting. So that's the sort of just talking about the the um, the seeking um, the idea of conscious contact uh, I, I have one of my one of the sections in in step 11 in, in one breath at a time it's called conscious contact I think and uh, and it's just making the uh, kind of... Uh, claim that when we are feeling our breath, when we are present for any moment of our experience, that we are consciously contacting the present moment and that this is where God is, where life is, where everything is. It's just here in this moment. There's nowhere else to look or to find anything. Where would God be hanging out if not in the present moment? I think we uh, times kind of reach for some kind of special um, mystical experience or union. I mean, conscious contact with a higher power sounds so magical, but but if we just see uh, reality as, as containing God, as you know, our breath contains God, our hearts contain God, um, everything around us contains God, then, then when we are aware, when we're not lost in our thoughts, we are in contact with God. Um, I'm just kind of doing my, you know, working through the words of the step. So I'll talk a little bit about prayer. This is a place that uh, a lot of people come to Buddhism and feel that there isn't prayer in Buddhism. And that's because um, our understanding of what prayer is about is about asking some external being or force or power to intervene in our lives, intercessionary prayer. Um, So uh, asking God to do something for us. And, um, but if we look at uh, Buddhist ritual, and many forms of Buddhist meditation, we can see them as another form of prayer that isn't asking for um, some force to intervene in our lives. But it's doing something maybe a little more subtle. Um, we can say that the loving kindness and forgiveness practices are prayers, um, where we are trying to cultivate qualities within ourselves. We are um, talking to ourselves. I mean, what are what are prayers but talking to ourselves? Uh, so, sort of asking what what are we saying to ourselves, and what, what's going on when we talk to ourselves in this way. Uh, when I think about something like the serenity prayer, uh, I think what, when I say, God, grant me the serenity to, to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference, I think what I'm doing is I'm trying to remind myself first of all not to struggle with trying to change things that are not under my control i'm just remind when i when i remember that uh that uh, trying to control things that i can't control trying to change things just causes me agitation and suffering and that if i accept things that I can't change, as being what they are, that I have serenity, then I'm just, then the prayer is a reminder to me. And it works. It's very effective. It's a very effective reminder. Because that's all I have to do is remember, oh, right, trying to change things I can't change. and reminding myself that I need to carry through on and make the effort to do things that, uh, not just that I can change, I mean, that, that kind of the literal step, I don't have to change everything that I can change, but, but that I have to be responsible for things, that I can't be passive about the things that uh, really are um, my responsibility. A lot of prayers I think of as a setting of intention. I'm trying to, uh, you know, when I when I offer loving kindness to uh, anyone, I'm just trying to not. To, I'm trying to cultivate this quality in myself, but I'm also trying to set the intention to have this quality in my mind to to be uh, to express loving-kindness in my in my actions and even towards those who are difficult for me when i do loving kindness for the difficult person i don't expect myself to all of a sudden be able to love people that i have had conflict with but for me a lot of it is is setting that as an ultimate goal. This is who I would like to be, ultimately. Um, I I created prayers just kind of for fun in this book. um, So that... um, So all the higher powers that I talk about in here, I have prayers to or about. So the prayer for mindfulness, I set my intention to be mindful today. I will try to stay in my body. I will try to let go of greed and hateful thoughts. I will be present and open to my feelings. I will be awake Will be awake to the needs of those around me. So that's really a setting, a setting of intention. The higher power of suffering. I open myself to the higher power of suffering letting go of resistance and allowing its truth and power to guide me. (coughs) I recognize that suffering is not personal, but shared by all beings. And I offer compassion and love to myself and all beings everywhere. We can also, um, when uh, when we recite or practice the precepts, we can make these as kind of vows. This is another way that Buddhists pray in a sense. We make the bodhisattva vow, the vow to uh, try to free all beings from suffering. Um, You can make vows around um, recovery. um, There's a monastery in Thailand that treats uh, addicts, and one of the main things they use is a vow, which is kind of antithetical to the traditional 12-step view that we're just doing it one day at a time. Um but um, well I'll digress a little bit to say that um, there's a book called um oh, no i got sober in the title uh, what No, not living sober this is anyway it's a it's a book about um where this woman was interested like how does recovery work for people uh, across programs and across um, different approaches. So she interviewed like 250 people who have been sober for five years or more. This was strictly about alcoholism, so it's not necessarily relevant to all addictions. But um, she, she talked to them about various uh, subjects, and so half of them had got sober in AA, and half of them got sober different ways, some through different programs, some on their own. Uh, I don't know if any of them just got sober through, like, some other religion, but, uh, but I liked the fact that she was interviewing people who weren't just in AA because, so that you could sort of get a broader view of maybe are there uh, she's trying to get at how does this work rather than um, in a broader sense than just through steps or through a pro- that program. And one of the things that she found was that most of the people had a commitment to lifelong sobriety. Even people in AA who supposedly were saying one day at a time that really once they were had gotten sober they they didn't they weren't really doing it one day at a time. And when I read that I thought, right, that's how it is for me and I think it, that's how it is for most of the people I know in recovery. It's not like they're saying, well, I'm just going to stay sober today and I'll see you about tomorrow. That's can be true for newcomers, for sure, and it, I think it's really helpful for someone who's new. But for most people, I don't know. I, I, we could poll people here, but we don't have a statistician to. Anyway, I'm not going to poll you. I could just have you raise your hand. But just, you know, I, I'm just going to stick with my belief. I don't want to be confused by facts. Uh, but actually, I mean, this was, you know, this was kind of a fact-based thing. It was, it was some research, and, and, um, you know, so I think a vow is also part of another kind of prayer. Anyway, as I said, I'm digressing a little bit there. Um, let me move, continue to move through this step, and then I'm going to get you guys to ask. I hope you'll ask me some questions to keep me going here. Um, this this question of praying for knowledge of His will for us just let's it's, it's just say praying for knowledge of its will or God's will. Um, my friend Tom Catton, whose book The Mindful Addict uh, came out last year, is he's he's big on getting direction on asking for direction. In his meditation. Sorry. Um, And um, feels that like this part of the steps is underemphasized, that we really should be getting, uh, praying for knowledge of God's will. And I think it's a little intimidating and it can seem even uh, presumptuous to say that we know what God's will is, if we're thinking that God is some being that's like sending us information. But if we just think of it in terms of kind of uh, doing the next right thing, uh, having an intuitive uh, sense of what we need to do, then I think that meditation is really, really important for this. We have to make decisions every day of our lives. And having some sense that we're in touch with our own intuition, whether you call it a higher power whether you call it your gut feeling or whatever you call it, I think is really important. And what What a serious mindfulness practice will help us to do, I think, is to separate out our uh, deluded or ego thoughts from a more intuitive wisdom. And I think that's one of the really important aspects of our practice. It's rarely talked about in Buddhist circles, as far as I can see. Maybe it is, but it, it, it doesn't seem to me that it's directly talked about in that way. Um, maybe because there is a sense of like being presumptuous, like, I know what I'm supposed to do. Of course we don't know. But um, when we watch our mind for a while, we start to see certainly the, you know, classically, greed, hatred, and delusion, the ways that those express themselves the three poisons. And then we, get, we can also start to feel and connect with those moments when there really is a sense of clarity in the mind. And it's not that we think, oh, I know this is the absolute right answer, but rather that we just kind of see that our thinking gets clearer. And this is, obviously, this, uh, these words are really uh, I'm almost quoting Big Book, you know, that talks about very much the same thing. That will develop an intuition, um, and that our, you know, um, the answers will come if our own house is in order. The classic uh, phrase, and and that's exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, um, So I think I think it's important to um, make this this part of the step. Less of a big deal, like, oh, what's God's will for me? And just make it more of a natural part of our our um, step work, our daily lives. Um, I don't know what to say about the power to carry that out. <laughs> Praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Um, I guess I don't talk about that very much. maybe I punted on that one so so now, help me out here. say something uh, you know you know how the mind is um when you're not when you're feeling off. I'm looking at you guys all tonight thinking they're really hating me tonight <laughs> I'm really bad i'm this is really boring i'm just this is terrible so um uh, not, not that I'm, you know, asking for you to take care of me, but um, uh, I'm just, you know.
1: The only thing I want to say is <laughs> I've been coming out every week. We come out the back road from Novato, uh, and tonight was the first night. I had to roll the window down. I got car sick as a passenger, huh? so I just want to comfort you. So the In whole the time, I was like, oh, I'm needing fresh air, so yeah. this... I'm with you, is all I want to say.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> um, I, I, I don't think I'm actually sick. I think I did just kind of get whatever.
2: Um, what is, how does Buddhism understand those rare but very real experiences when in prayer you actually, or I have actually heard a response or a voice from outside myself. And it's, it's been twice in 25 years, but is, how does the... We in- think that you're schizophrenic. That's it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: but how does that kind
2: of, how is that understood in terms of the internal intuitive process you were talking about?
0: Uh, um, I've never had an experience like that. So you mean you actually heard a voice?
2: Yeah, and the first time was um, actually on a retreat after an hour, or during an hour of silent meditation.
0: Well, what did the voice say?
2: Um, it was very simple. It, there was a woman standing in front of me, and she said, trust me. Uh-huh. And when I asked her why she had said that after the uh, meditation, she just got this huge grin on her face and said she wasn't speaking. You know, So that's why I, I characterize it as a real...
0: So there Outside. was there a real
2: there or? was a real person, yes, she was one of the facilitators and and I, she, but and she I didn't heard her say anything no, I you? heard her speaking to me, and she wasn't speaking uh-huh
0: i, I you know that's kind of beyond my purview I mean
2: it, i am not asking for an explanation I'm just no, wondering oh, if darn. if if I, I was going to make one up <laughs> well if you have one great, but um I I I don't know much about Buddhism and I don't understand certainly the concept of um there not being an external yeah. power greater than myself.
0: Well, yeah, it's I mean internal and external in some ways are they're not real things ultimately, if because what? That's just a way of tr- talking about something that uh, it's trying to. It's 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 like a, it's as much of a metaphor as anything, because uh, uh, everything is everything, as Wessner screw would say. <laughs> I mean, you know. There, Like external to what? In other words, I mean, it's like, you know, here's this body and this brain and stuff. And I could say that inside here there are organs, there's a brain, and outside there's air and other bodies. But in a larger sense, we're all just, we're all inside. We're all in the universe. Okay, now I'm just, see, I. <laughs> but I you know I I think that uh, having experiences like that there's I mean I think it's interesting certainly there are there are some Buddhists who will talk about um the idea of a a greater kind of universal consciousness that are that our consciousness is actually just part of some bigger consciousness, and that we perceive ourselves as having a separate consciousness, but when our mind gets to a certain level of perception, it actually opens up to something greater, and that in some sense we're kind of feeding into it, and we're also feeding out of it, and that that a perception like that where, where there's um, some external, you know, a message that comes is more like a tapping into that that more universal consciousness. Uh, <clears throat> Since nobody really knows even where consciousness is located, that's as good an explanation as anything. Um, uh, 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 let me go back though to internal and external for a moment, because let's t- talking about something like. The power of mindfulness, which is one of the things that I kind of call a higher power, is mindfulness inside you or outside you. It's. I don't think it's. That becomes kind of irrelevant. It's not really. It doesn't really operate like that. You know what I mean? It's like mindfulness. I can be mindful, but does that mean it's inside me I, you know and there's other people being mindful around me are they are our mindfulnesses bumping into each other it's not ex- internal or external it's just it just is is impermanence internal or external is karma internal or external they're just it's all' it's all contained we're all like kind of contained in this this Beingness, and, and it's, uh, it it comes from our our uh, the basic delusion that we are separate in some way. You know, the, yeah. You know, there's these. It's like, yeah. This it's it's raining. All those raindrops are separate, but you know, they all came from the same cloud. They're all going to fall into the earth. They're just you know, for a moment they come down here separately, but they're not separate and they're not it's just raining you know we're just people okay let's move on next question we're gonna have to blow up this well i was just gonna
1: comment on your comment i think you answered it pretty well and i I was liking it to um kind of like big me little me so when you're operating you know especially specifically when you're meditating and you're taking the time to be really conscious you know you're tapping in it's like the big me and you're tapping into sort of that river of consciousness that, yeah. you know, the Buddha talks about where, you know, ultimately nirvana is found where you're just completely connected with everything around you. Um, and then, you know, of course, the little me is sort of like the closed-minded, you know, kind of unconscious, busy, disconnected person where, you know, it's harder to tap into those things.
0: So. Yeah, but those, those are all just... Dependent upon perception, it's not as though it, 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 it's only that we are um, perceiving things or um, experiencing things from a certain viewpoint. But I mean, there is no big me or little me, first of all. But but yeah, there's yeah the, right, and and. I guess the way that i connect think about it i mean that's that 's a perfectly reasonable way to think about it, because, as you say it 's all just metaphors but the for me when the when the ego quiets down, when the self obsession quiets i 'm aware that there is co- just consciousness, this pure consciousness that isn 't connected to me, it's it's and it feels like something bigger. It feels more spacious, and and um, less troubled. It's not caught up in in the concerns of the little self, as you say. Um, but but having that perception, one of the things that I immediately realize is that that that. Awareness is always there. It's not that by um, by letting go of thoughts it appears. It's only that by the letting go of the self self view or the self obsession that I become aware of it. It just becomes, it moves from the background into the foreground because that noise that was covering it up fades away. Mm-hmm. So anyway,
3: okay. Um, so this is well. It's the wording is in step ten, but I don't think it's about step ten. But when I read it again, um, I the hit that I got was you know it was continued to take personal inventory. I don't have my glasses on. And when, when we were wrong, wrong. A minute Well. My issue these days is when I'm right, I'm promptly admitting it. So I've noticed this recently since I've been getting sober, I've I've had a real fear of like um, singing or performing. And so um, in this last year, I've been really pushing through that fear and I was in this musical production and I noticed that I was just like, you know, always wanting, I I, I don't like it. It, it. It's something that I don't really care for. It's like, well, I did it. You know, if the director said, well, so-and-so and so-and-so did that, I would say, well, I did too. Uh-huh. You know, I hate it. It's like, wow, it's this little five-year-old or something that just wants this attention. So I wanted to kind of throw the meditation aspect to it, and how could I just sort of listen to it but not really act on it?
0: Hmm. So you're, you're talking about wanting to get credit for yeah. something you feel you, you did... I mean, that, and you're just trying to follow yeah. you how you got from step 10 to that, so you're kind of saying... Well,
3: well so that's why I was saying it's not really part of step 10, but, well, when, I'm, no, right, but I'm, well, I, when I'm right, I'm promptly admitting it. Right,
0: you know? but, you, but you're, you're, I mean, it's, you know, it's okay to say you're right, but you're, uh, you're kind of trying to uh, get, you're asking for the give me the good stuff, give me the the attention. Yeah, there's some need I want to get met
3: to see me, and and it doesn't really feel good, actually.
0: Sure. Well, (laughs) you know, you're talking to somebody who likes to sit in front of (laughs) a crowd of people and get approval, so... You can relate? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure I can be very helpful in this regard. Um, I'm just thinking about that experience. Um, I I guess it it reminds me, you know, it's very much, it is, I mean, you said something, did you say something about a five-year-old? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it is very much that. the kid wanting attention. And I think it's fine to want attention. And if you're doing something, some kind of performance or something like that, it's certainly normal to expect some kind of feedback. The problem for a lot of us, maybe, is that we go to the wrong people to get it. Or, you know, you want it from, you want it from mom, and uh, unfortunately mom isn't able to give that, you know. Um, I mean, it's, you know, one of the things that I've experienced is how, um, like when, like with my books, there's like certain people that I want you know, I wish they would read it and 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 tell me how much they liked it, like my brothers or something. You know, and and then, but it's like strangers who tell me, "Oh, your book was so great." And I'm like, I don't care what you think about it. <laughs> I mean, I do. <laughs> it's nice, but but you know, it doesn't have the same, You know, you can't. It's never the people that you know that you know that give that you wanted to give the approval, and then it, it's that's that. And being able to just. Um, you know, see that. I mean, you're seeing it, which is great. And then uh, being able to uh, take in the pleasure of, of where it does come from. But ultimately, of course, our work has to be satisfying in and of itself to us. If it's not, then there's no point in doing it. You know, um, I, uh, the truth is that I get great pleasure... Out of writing, and then reading what I've d- done. And although that's not the end of the process, I recognize that to an extent, it's, it's the end of my control of the process. And what happens after that is just well, that's where I have to you know, that's where the serenity prayer comes in. I can't, I can't control the response that people have. Uh, And if if I'm doing it for the response, then I get to see how I create my own suffering. And then I get to say, is this something I really want to be doing? Or am I just doing it so that people will love me? (laughs) Uh, And if I'm doing it just so people will love me, then what's the point? Uh, They can never love you enough. Uh, So That was a Happy thought. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're a love addict. Yeah.
1: <laughs> this isn't so much a question, I just want you to speak towards something. Um, the, the issue of control and making the distinction that's so beautifully said in the serenity prayer, but then the idea of this apology for when you overstep that control and realizing the difference of when control is appropriate and when it's appropriate to just lay back because um, I'm a little bit of a control freak. So you're... T-
0: It would have been easier if you'd just to ask me how to stay awake when you're meditating, because <laughs> I have like standard answers for things like that. Um, control and how to know when you're not when you're being too controlling.
1: You get a lot of kudos for being in control often. Uh huh. Because you can take care of things, and thank goodness you took care of that, and now will you take care of me, and sure, I can, I can fix that too.
4: Yeah.
0: Well, I, I hate to be overly simplistic, but, I, but there, simple, simply, it's about mindfulness. It's about watching. Well, I mean, the internal part is watching how you feel. Is that's where you get a big signal. If it's working, if it's appropriate for you to be doing what you're doing, it will feel right if you're really paying attention to how it feels. And if it's not, it'll start to feel like that, you know, and, and there will be that, that struggle. Um... Externally, there are so many different situations. I mean, if it's with your children, (laughs) it's so hard to determine because people will uh, keep um, asking for you to take care of them until they get sick of you taking care of them. And if it's children, it may be, you may have already created the monster, you know, if you've, if you've been taking care of them, or, or, you know, not giving them enough responsibility. You know, you know what I'm saying? Because I, I don't know what you're really talking about specifically. It's, it's, more, it's helpful if you actually talk about a specific relationship.
1: Okay. Um, if you don't mind. So in my marriage...
0: I've heard about those.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> um, husband has a drinking problem, uh-huh. um, been unemployed for four years, I can fix him. Uh-huh. And letting go of that are idea. Are you in Al-Anon? I went to one meeting and then I started coming here on Thursday night, so uh-huh. father was also an alcoholic. There are some people so here in
0: Al-Anon, yeah. aren't they? Yeah. It would be good if you talked to her tonight. I'm not kidding. Um, <laughs>
1: Does that set it up better? Well,
0: <laughs> yeah. It's really that's like hitting it off the tee, man. It's, <laughs> stop, you know. I mean, four years. Is he on, is he on disability? No. Okay. Well, I mean, it's easy for me to sit here and judge you, but it's not really helpful, and, and life is way more complicated than simple, you know, this and that and the other thing. But, I mean, what, what do you, how does it feel to you? How's it been feeling?
1: A lot of anger, but after your comment, I'm wondering if that anger isn't toward myself instead of toward him.
0: Well, both, I would think. I mean, um, that's just, uh, I, I'm i a little, like, overwhelmed by that, by your, by your, what you're describing, and I feel it's, it's, um, I don't, I'm not comfortable sort of being in the role of being up here and, you know, telling you how to handle your a situation like that. Um, but yeah, in general terms, I think we have to look internally and externally and see... We have to see beyond the immediate um, situation and see what karma we are creating in when we are helping people. Uh, if we are to see, I mean, this is the classic situation, I mean, not your situation, but the, the classic situation of the enabler is when we see that someone is suffering and we uh, help them because they are suffering, but not but at a certain point, if it's around addiction or their own re- something that they, I'll say, should be responsible for, uh, like for instance, a kid who uh, skips school and you cover for them, and so that they, so what happens is that if someone doesn't have to bear the consequences of their actions, then they don't have the opportunity to grow and to change. This is what what's called why it's called enabling in someone's addiction because instead of allowing them, this is you know again one of the classic problems of compassion. Uh, compassion isn't always being nice. Sometimes being nice in the moment undermines the possibility of somebody's spiritual growth. Suffering is the Key to change. People don't change unless they suffer. I mean, in the big way, you know, they're not—they're not, they're not going to face their problems or deal with them if they don't have to deal with the consequences. So, if your kid is uh, uh, gets in trouble and you buy their way out of trouble all the time, then they just keep getting into trouble, right? Uh, if if the alcoholic keeps, or the, okay, the gambler keeps gambling their money away and they come, keep coming to you for more money, you keep giving them money, you're just f- making it easier for them to continue their addiction. If you say, no, you can't have any money, then they realize, wow, like I need to gamble and it's driving me crazy and maybe I have a problem. It, just an example, right? It's hard to see people we love suffer. And so, we do things to make them not suffer, but at a certain point, we might find that relieving them of temporary suffering is extending their long-term suffering and creating more of a problem in the long run. Uh, This is very painful. It can be very painful and very difficult, but uh, this is where we have to look at our own motivation whether we are avoiding our own suffering by trying to keep them from suffering uh, it's the classic case of the, uh, again you know i see uh, parents do this all the time if if your kids never learn to deal with adversity <laughs> when they grow up they won't know how to deal with adversity <laughs> if if nothing ever goes wrong in their life i mean i was so happy last year when my daughter uh, started to have trouble keeping up on the basketball team she was on in and had trouble in this advanced math class she was in. For the first time, she had to deal with the fact that she couldn't just, you know, everything at least she was like the best athlete and the best student or one of the best, you know, not the best, but, you know, she was, didn't have to really worry about it. All of a sudden, she had to find out what studying meant. All of a sudden, she had to find out what really working hard and being aggressive with her basketball team meant and what it meant to not be the best, and, and, uh, and she's grown so much through that, through that adversity. Uh, this is one of the things, I talk about this very much because it's my own experience. I didn't have to deal with adversity, and, and when I became a teenager and I had adversity, I just collapsed you know, and couldn't, didn't, uh, couldn't deal with it and became an alcoholic and an addict. It's what happens to a lot of us. Yeah, really hard. Okay, let's have one more and then I'm just going to wrap it up.
4: I'm about halfway through um, One Breath at a Time. And I was reading tonight about Internal sangha, which I found to be a wonderful concept, hmm. and was wondering if you could That's expound the, on it a little bit. Wow, further. where is that? <laughs> <laughs> if
0: terms,
4: I had my iPad, I could show you.
0: Internal sangha is it step
4: three? It, I believe so. It was part of a um, talking that you were doing. And, yeah. um,
0: That was like talking about the refuges with Ajahn Amaro?
4: Yes. Yeah. Uh, And there was a teacher, a monk who was a teacher. Yeah, that's
0: Ajahn Amaro. Yeah. Uh, Wow. I'll have to look it up because way too spaced out to think about. Okay. When the one who knows sees the way things are. So this is talking about the three refuges Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. This is kind of the. You could say this is the classic kind of uh, turning your will and your life over in Buddhism is when you take refuge in Buddha, I sort of should, uh, which is really the awakened mind or the mind, mindfulness. Take refuge in the Dharma, the truth of the way things are. So Ajahn Cha, who was Ajahn Amros. Ajahn is just an honorific that you get after you've been, been a monk for 10 years, for officially for 10 rains retreats. So uh, Ajahn Cha was Ajahn Amaro's teacher. And Ajahn Cha, who is also Jack Cornfield's teacher, called the Buddha the one who knows. Like in us, uh, the, the one in us that knows, the part of us that knows or is aware. The Dharma, he says, is the truth of the way things are. So then the Sangha, this is, this is so this is quoting Ajahn Amaro, he says, when the one who knows Sees the way things are. What comes forth from that is unselfishness and benevolent activity. Refuge in sangha is this capacity to harmonize with other beings and situations. Spiritual communion. If we choose unselfishness, we realize our connectedness and har- We realize our connectedness and harmony is the result.
2: Well, there
0: should be a comma there. Uh, <laughs> Um, and then, I, I just, so this is a dialogue with him I look at him this is a surprising conclusion for me I thought Sangha was supposed to be people monks or other Buddhists I have to take in this new idea so you mean that when we get clear awake and see what's really true we tend to be more kind generous and all that yes But for me, I was practicing pretty seriously and still using drugs and alcohol, still in denial. And it doesn't seem like meditation helped. It's well acknowledged that delusion is the trickiest of the fires to extinguish. Sometimes there is not even a whiff of smoke, yet it's still burning. Still, although the capacity to be unselfish might be severely obstructed by circumstance or habit or whatever, the fact is that the refuge is there. Wow, this is pretty trippy, huh? I don't even remember this. <laughs> uh, even when you still drink, there must have been a part of you that at least wanted something different. There you were going on retreat or whatever, trying to find something more meaningful, trying to develop the qualities of compassion and loving kindness. Well, anyway, yeah, that's worth go- going back over again. I, I think that Ajahn Amaro might have written that for me because we had this conversation, and then I, he had reviewed my manuscript and. He probably said, well, this is what I really wanted to say. Anyway, um, so the, the idea is that, essentially the idea is that as we get connected uh, and become more mindful, that naturally we are going to be also more kind and that we are going to be living a more moral life if we are truly mindful and awake and see the way things are. Are, there's going to be an instinctive movement towards morality. Or it's called sila. Uh, because if you're mindful, it's painful to cause suffering to others and to yourself. You, in order to, be, uh, uh, to break the precepts or to, to be harmful to other people, we have to shut down. We have to become numb. And you think about somebody who was committing violent crimes, or even just like those of us who were drinking using all the time. We had to be, we had to shut down in order to do that. So that's what to me, the, what he's talking about, is that as we wake up, we become, there's a, a natural movement towards morality and kindness as well. Uh, and it, and it is kind of one of the issues that I've had with, with practice because I talked about how, you know, I did this practice for a long time while I was still drinking and using. But as he's saying, still there was a movement and it, it took years. It wasn't like, oh, I'm mindful. I went on a retreat. Wow, oh, I should stop drinking. You know, it, it, it took time for that to really penetrate. But, uh, but it did, eventually. Yeah.
4: It seems to... Seems to occur, that kind of pain, seems to occur, especially when I'm having problems with my wife.
0: Which kind of pain?
4: Uh, the pain of shutting down, the pain of causing pain to somebody else. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be something that I work through a lot. Yeah. Being a husband. Yeah. Um, and it's difficult, and it's, you know, it, it is something that I work on probably every day. Good. <laughs> Thank you.
0: <laughs> you know, I was talking about that last week, about how intimacy is so difficult, how we, we um, intimacy makes us vulnerable, and all those instincts of protecting ourselves, wanting to be right, um, be, the fear that comes up when we, when we are intimate and vulnerable, so that we become defensive and protecting ourselves. Um, and there's a classic uh, sutta, no, I don't think I mentioned this last week, I might have, born of those who are dear. I, I was looking for a sutta one time soon after my daughter was born where I thought I'd like to find something where the Buddha talks about being a parent in some nice way. So I found this title, Born of Those Who Are Dear, and I thought, oh, this would be a nice sutta about being a parent or being a child. Well, what's born of those who are dear is suffering, according to the Buddha. And, there, and the, it, within the sort of there's sort of a debate between the king and the queen uh, about whether that's true, and, and the Buddha kind of makes it clear. Yeah, it, you know, don't uh, don't you suffer if your wife doesn't do what you want her to do, or if your kids get hurt, or if you know when do you you suffer the most over people that you love? Um, So, that's life. Well, thank you for hanging in with me tonight. Um, I will be back here in this same spot tomorrow night, God willing. (laughs) (laughs) And the creek don't rise. Um, But uh, my usual monthly class, the uh, Dharma and Recovery class, will be tomorrow night. So you are... Invited to uh, come back and see if I'm any better tomorrow than I, than I was tonight. Um, and, but if you come early, you'll probably get to hear the same song because I'm going to be. Uh, this is the early marketing stages of my. CDM. this is my teaser campaign. So let's just close with uh, a little loving kindness. And just breathing into the heart. Tonight, let's just offer ourselves some compassion, kindness. May I be happy. May I take the actions which bring happiness in my own life. May I be peaceful. May I act in ways that bring peace to my life. may I be free from suffering may I take the actions that end suffering in my life Thank you very much. Next week we will have the last week of the class and exploring step 12. Keep coming back, keep sitting, keep exploring for yourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit
4: dharmaseed.org slash donate.